0: If you were here Sunday, you know Jeremiah had a tough job. Perhaps the most difficult task given to Jeremiah of any of the Hebrew prophets. In my opinion, the most difficult task. He had to bear witness to and be a witness of the destruction of his nation. He had to watch as it was wiped out. And before that even happened, he had to bring that word to the people. And what's remarkable to me is that even as God was calling Jeremiah, that judgment was already certain. It was set in stone. It was irrevocable at that time. Judah would be judged. Jerusalem would fall. Now you might find that interesting because as we read through Jeremiah, there are times where the Lord calls out to His people, return to me. But even as he calls out, knowing that the path has been chosen, that it's been set, because of the unrepentance of the people of Judah. So Jeremiah knew, as he's prophesying this, that judgment is coming, but he also knew that it was not God's heart for the people. That God did not want to judge them. But his righteousness would require it. And so in the middle of this task, and if you were here Sunday, I hope you caught this. I hope you understood this. Jeremiah, as a prophet, had to be absolutely sure of his calling. He had to be sure. He had to know this was what God wanted him to speak. This was God's will for his life because it was so hard. It was so full of judgment. He had to be sure. And the Lord takes care of that right out the gate. Verses 5-8 through in chapter 1, look back there. There were seven things that the Lord said as He called Jeremiah. Listen to them again. In verse 5, He says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Okay, so He knew Him before He formed Him. So those are the first two things Jeremiah needed to understand. Hey, I, I knew you before you were a twinkle in your father's eye. You were a twinkle in my eye. I knew you and I formed you. Those are the first two. And before you were born, verse 5 continues, I consecrated you. And I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Wait a minute. Isn't this a prophecy to Judah? It is. But may the nations, including this nation, understand that this word is not only to Judah. Of course, Jeremiah puts God off. I'm a youth. I'm just a kid. I I don't know how to speak. And the Lord said to me, don't say. I am a youth, verse 7, because everywhere I go, because everywhere I send you, that's number 5, I send you. It's not everywhere you go. It's everywhere I send you. And all that I command you, number 6, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, (laughs) his own people. Don't be afraid of them. For number 7, I am with you. Again, I formed you, I knew you, I consecrated you, I have appointed you, I send you, I command you, I am with you. It's all about God. It is not about Jeremiah. And God offers him this absolute certainty in his calling. And the Lord seals that calling with two very common visions of extraordinary significance. I won't go back into those, but you know the almond branch and the boiling pot... Jeremiah sees these and God gives example by these of this calling that Jeremiah has. And then finally, wrapping it all up, the Lord says in verse 19 of chapter 1, They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Now, I I just wanted to review that because, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are a called person, just like Jeremiah I'm not called, I drive a truck. You are called if you are in Christ. And just like Jeremiah, it is becoming absolutely imperative in these times in which we live that we are sure of our calling. Every last one of us. We need to know there's no more room for sitting in church and waffling, am I saved, am I not saved? Do I belong to Christ? Do I not belong to Christ? Listen, if you've given your heart to Jesus, you belong to Him if you've chosen Jesus he already chose you work that one out in your brains there is an absolute certainty and we need to be sure and not waffle in this because you know what happens when we waffle in our calling we make it all about ourselves there's a lot of uncertainty in Rick's calling but in God's calling of Rick there is zero uncertainty I know he has a plan I know he has a hope and a future and I know He's going to use me. I don't always understand how. I don't always understand why, but I know He's going to use me. And so I am called to be faithful to Him. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Why do we have to be so certain in these days, Rick, as opposed to previous generations? Because, gang, the judgment of all nations has been announced. It's not just the judgment of Judah that we have to consider. Judah's judgment came and went. And there is a future, and there is a hope for Judah. And for all of Israel, as we will see. But there is a judgment about to come on all the nations. Every nation on the face of the earth. And we better well know of our calling in these last days. Why is the judgment of Judah so certain? We'll look at verse 16 of chapter 1 again. I will pronounce My judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken Me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and have worshipped the works of their hands. Just two weeks ago, on December 27th, the ruins of a 2,750-year-old temple were discovered in an archaeological site in Israel. The remains of a temple found in Tel Moza not Jerusalem. Moza, where's Moza? Joshua 18.26 lists it as one of the cities of the tribe of Benjamin right on the border of Judah. 2,750 years old means that it was after the building of the Temple of Solomon. It was in the days somewhere between the temple being built in Jerusalem, Solomon's Temple, and the destruction of Solomon's Temple in 586. Somewhere in the middle there, this temple is dated to. Site directors Anna Arik and Dr. Hamoudi Khalili and Shua Kisalevitz They released this statement. The uniqueness of the structure is even more remarkable because of the vicinity of the site's proximity to the capital city of Jerusalem, which acted as the kingdom's main sacred center at the time. I read about this and I went, main sacred center? This is supposed to be the only sacred center. There weren't supposed to be any other sacred centers in all of Israel. No, it's Jerusalem. You go up to Jerusalem seven times a year. Three times were compulsory. The rest were encouraged strongly. You do your worship there. You come to where the Lord is. The temple in Jerusalem wasn't just one of the sites or the main sacred center. This temple at Talmodsa, gang, was a pagan temple. It was an idolatrous temple built right there on the border of Judah right near within six miles of the temple in Jerusalem unbelievable that is the brazenness of idolatry you see what happened with the Jewish people is idolatry began in the hills you know they'd sneak off to the high places or the groves of trees the hidden places and practice their idolatry but within a couple hundred maybe 250 years of the first temple being built they built a temple within sight of the temple of Jehovah that was to other gods A pagan temple. That's what idolatry does. It starts as a hidden thing. Sin does this. We start hidden, and we become more and more bold and more brazen with it. One word, Hollywood. (laughs) The brazenness of the idolatry of Judah. By the time Jeremiah is prophesying, God had allowed the people 500 years, roughly... To understand, he had sent prophet after prophet after prophet. To speak to them and to say, get it right, get away, put away your idols. He had sent great kings who, after the heart of David, tore down the high places, got rid of the idolatry. Archaeologists think this temple at Mozam must have existed before the reforms of Hezekiah and Isaiah. But we know from Scripture that idol worship was in full swing when young Josiah became king. How do we know that? Because Josiah himself was called to restore the land. Called to revive the land and get rid of all the idolatry. But Josiah, for his wonderful work and his passion for the Lord, brought forth short-term revival. And even before his death in 609, the judgment of Judah came to Jeremiah by the word of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1. This is where we pick up. Now the word of the Lord came to me. This is going to be the first message first word of the Lord to Jeremiah for the people. Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. As God begins this judgment, He starts with a longing, with a memory. With thoughts about those days in the wilderness. Now, you know, the days in the wilderness weren't all good. But for 40 years, the people followed God. For 40 years, He cleansed them of the sin and rebellion and taught them dependence upon Him. For 40 years, they walked together. And God looks back on that and has a longing for it and and remembers their devotion in those times and the love they had and how they really depended upon Him. And this is deeply felt and tenderly expressed. The Lord says, I remember how much you used to love me. This is heartbreaking. By the way, does that sound familiar? It's a New Testament passage that sounds... Very similar to that where Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. And they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've left your first love. Jesus... Longing for the days of Ephesus' first love. Ephesus means darling one. It's a term of endearment. And Jesus, in that letter to Ephesus, is saying, Come back to our love relationship. You got the scriptures down, you know? You've got the, the, the wisdom and the, and the discernment and all of this down, and you're not tolerating it. You've got the righteousness thing going for you. That's all great. It's all well and good. But don't forget, we started out in love with each other. And that's what it all comes down to. And the Lord draws me back to this from time to time. It is for love that we are called. For the sake of love. And the question we have to ask ourselves, each and every one of us, is Jesus Christ my first love? Is He my first love? Think about your life. Your choices. What's of greatest importance and significance to you right now? Is it Jesus Is Jesus your first love? Being certain of my calling is as simple as returning to the ignited original passion of the love relationship I started out with in Jesus. I guess there are some people who become so called Christians out of fear, but the vast majority of us, when we realized how much God loved us, we entered into a love relationship, and it was great. Yes, I want that. Yes, I want to walk with Him. Yes, I want to live in that grace. Yes, I want this relationship. You get the butterflies in the stomach, you know. And Jesus says, don't forget how that felt. Not emotionally, don't forget spiritually the passion of our love relationship. When I called you. When I called upon Him. The Lord's heart here clearly aches. When his people leave that first love, when his people become religious or become worldly or wander away, his heart aches. Verse 3, he says, Israel was holy to the Lord. The first of his harvest, which is good news for us because that means that we follow after. You know, The harvest is bigger than just Israel. The first of his harvest... And all who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. And he's talking about anyone who came against Israel in those days. Any enemies who attacked. You know, Moab and Edom and some of the others. Israel was just trying to come into the land. Who caused them problems. Who tried to eat of Israel. They became guilty. And God pronounced judgment on them. Verse 4, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. That's everyone. Every Jew. Every Jew. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in Me? That they went far from Me and and walked after emptiness and became empty. They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt? Who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness? Through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt. I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things. But you came and defiled my land and my inheritance, my inheritance, you made an abomination. In other words, God's saying to Israel, what did I do to, reserve the, to deserve this rejection? You know, you hear the words here of a husband whose wife has taken off on him. What did I do? How did I cause this? But in this case, a husband who was perfect through no fault of his own. Everything was ideal. This is the perfect man, ladies. This is the one you all dreamed of. Hopefully, if you're married, you're not still dreaming of. The ideal husband. He's always there. Doing everything you ask. Pouring out love and affection and honor upon you. But that's not good enough, so you leave. And he says, what did I do? What did I do to deserve this? These are the words of a father whose kids rebel against him and all he's shown them is love and affection. Spurned and rejected. And verse 8, he says, The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handle the law, that would be the scribes, they did not know me. That's shocking to me. How can you handle the law and not know the Lord? If you really handle the law. I don't understand how you can read Torah. As we did here at the Bridge. Study through the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures and tell me, how can you not know the Lord? And yet they didn't. It was all about words on page and had nothing to do with the Spirit. And he says, the rulers, that would be the kings, they all also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that did not profit. There's a leadership vacuum in Judah. And he lists here, and he's going to do it again in this judgment, all four areas of leadership here. The priests and the scribes and the kings and the prophets, all these areas, and there's not leadership in any of them. It's like saying in the government and the schools and the churches, where's the leadership? There's a vacuum. It's missing. And even the prophets were chasing things of no profit. It Kind of makes them void, you know? If the leaders don't seek God, what are the people going to do? And I ask this question... Not so much to you all tonight as much as to Washington, D.C. If the leaders of a nation don't seek God, why should the people? I also ask this question to the American church. If leaders in our churches are not seeking God, but instead are going to broadcast the Seahawks this Sunday, which is happening in a church down in Seattle, really? Really? Now, I have nothing against the Seahawks. What, when is the game? Anybody know? Sunday morning at 9 or 10 o'clock. Sunday morning at 9 or 10 o'clock, which, in my opinion, is an abomination. How dare they? That's God's time. That's not football time. I love football. That's not football time. East Coast football time. East Coast football time. Well, good for the East Coast. They can stay up late. I just I, this this kind of stuff just riles me and I know there are people who would disagree with me that's okay we can disagree God will set you right <laughs> I don't get this Brian sent me the article I saw it just before I was leaving the house I'm not going to name the church but the pastor loves the Seahawks the church loves the Seahawks they have former Seahawks players in the church so hey let's cancel services we'll all show up and we'll just watch the game hallelujah praise the Seahawks Anyway, and that, you know, that's trite. By comparison, their church is doing things that are so off the charts, that are so ungodly. There's, no, there's a leadership vacuum. Instead of acknowledging the power and the person of God, we have politics coming from the podiums and platitudes coming out of the pulpits, and no wonder our country is confused as to what to believe. And that was the problem in Judah. The entire leadership stopped following God. And when the leadership doesn't, the people will not either. I just want to know what happened. Let me just be on my soapbox for just a moment longer here. Whatever happened to the sound preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That mankind is sinful and desperately needs a Savior and that as Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 verse 1 you were dead in your trespasses and sins oh we can't say people are sinners why? we are you can't call people bad why? we are we were dead in our sins that's the truth that's the reality and if we ignore that we're never going to ask or seek a Savior I'm good enough on my own thanks a lot God don't really need your help I'll see you in heaven no you won't Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, But though you were dead, God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now don't you want to hear that message? Isn't that a message that would turn around this country, not to mention this world? Not to mention friends and family, but you know if you'd rather invite someone to come watch a Seahawks game at church, I guess you can do that too. And I'm totally preaching to the choir, but i got to get this off my chest, gang. Preach the gospel, man. When the leaders lose their godly vision, the people are in trouble. Proverbs 29.18 Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. There's your joy in righteousness, in holiness. I wonder people are so unhappy these days. Well, the leadership was suffering a vacuum. They were not there. They were not leading. Verse 8, verse 9, continuing. Therefore, I will contend with you, declares the Lord. Man, that should scare the socks off of someone. To hear the Almighty God say, I am going to contend with you. And with your sons, sons, I will contend. Well, why? It's not their fault. Oh, this is being passed along, gang. It's going to be as bad for the grandsons as it is for grandpa. They're going to be doing the same thing. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I'm going to contend with you. Verse 10. For cross to the coastlands of Katim and see, and send to Kedar and observe closely and see if there has been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. What's he talking about here? The Lord is saying this is absolutely unparalleled. The Lord God is astonished. He's saying Judah is doing what even the pagan nations didn't do. That's what he's talking about when he says go across to Katim. What's Katim? Cyprus jump on a ship and sail across to Cyprus and that pagan nation and ask them what gods they believe in. Guess what? They still believe in the same gods they believed in 500 years ago. They're still offering sacrifices to the same pagan idols that they were 500 years ago. They haven't changed their mind. God says, go to Saudi Arabia, Qadar, the Arabian villages. Go down there and talk to them. What gods do you believe in? What gods are you offering sacrifices to? Same gods they were 400, 500 years ago. They haven't changed their gods. The Lord looks at Israel and says, I am astonished that you're exchanging me. And we need to understand something here. There's a cultural reality. Belief systems are most deeply embedded in culture. When you try to strip a belief system out of a culture you strip the culture bare. Trying to take a belief system that a culture was founded upon, trying to take it out of the culture is like ripping a beating heart out of somebody's chest. And that's what's going on in our country. It's an attempt by some. No, I'm not paranoid. I see what's happening. My eyes are wide open. There are those who would rip the heart out of America, who would go back to the founders and say, "I don't care that they based our entire legal system on the 10 commandments. We don't need the 10 commandments." Rip! And when you take try to strip belief, especially founding belief out of a culture, you decimate the culture. Satan is not an idiot. He is very wily. He knows what he's doing. This is why it's so hard to impose democracy on Middle Eastern countries. You know, we went into Iraq and we're trying to make it democratic. And it is a struggle. Why? Because the deeply embedded belief there was Sharia law. Islam. And Islam is still the prevailing belief system there. How do you bring democracy into Sharia law? Sharia law is not democratic. It doesn't work. And I don't know that it will ever work. And when we try to change something like that that is so deeply embedded, one of two things will happen. Either the country will outright reject the change, or the country will fall. Strip a culture of its identity by ripping out the heart of its belief. That's why communism was so anti-religious. We don't want to let religion creep in because it will go head to head with communism, you know. Socialism, anti-religious. We cannot allow religion to get in there because religion will undermine socialism. Capitalism. We'll talk about that another time. So they're removing faith from culture and God is astonished. And Satan is behind this. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Verse 12, watch this. He says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. Who's God talking to there? I think the angels. I think he's looking around going, Do you guys believe this? Do you see what's going on? God says to the heavens to those in the heavens? Look around. Can you even believe what we're seeing happen here? For my people, he says, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, brethren and cisterns, listen up. Two related evils here. Two things going on. They have forsaken the Lord is number one. Number two is they have forsaken the Lord for broken cisterns. There are two problems. Water in Israel is a big deal. If you've been there, you know that. Big concerns about the level of the Sea of Galilee, the only freshwater lake there in Israel, the largest source of fresh water. And they're very concerned because it continues to be very low, dangerously low. There are three sources of getting water in Israel. The Sea of Galilee, or natural springs that would feed into that. So natural springs really is source number one. Source number two is the rains. The early rains in the fall and the latter rains in the spring. So when the rains come, hallelujah, praise the Lord, that's a good thing. We need the rains. The rains, the springs, and the cisterns. Of the three, all cisterns can do is store water. The rains and the springs supply the water. And God says, what you're doing, Israel, is you are denying the supply for the store. I'd rather just do with what we've got than have fresh coming from you, Lord. What would you prefer? No? Fresh water or stored water? Anyone live down on West Beach? Okay. So you may know on West Beach, um, you have a well on West Beach? You don't have a well? Okay. That water's gross. We were told, Cheryl and I rented, when we were building our house, we rented a house down on West Beach for a while and we were told don't wash your clothes. like, what? You know, we'd, we'd draw baths for the kids and the water was orange. And it didn't taste good. You know, It looked like orange shrink, didn't taste like it. And, and he's saying, look, fresh water. Your way of doing things is not fresh. It's stale, it's stagnant. You can't rely on old, stored up water because eventually it stagnates. God says, I'm the fountain of living water. The fountain of moving water. Constantly fresh, constantly new. Why are you trading out fresh water for old? A spring for a leaky tank. And he's saying, not only are you storing up water in cisterns, but they're broken cisterns, so they leak. They cannot serve you. And of course, when the Lord says, I am the fountain of living waters, of course, he's talking about his spirit. Which Jesus proclaimed in John 4.14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. That's so amazing. You know what that means? It means the Holy Spirit residing and living with you is fresh water every day. Every day. You wake up and the Spirit is refreshing and reviving your life. The Spirit is bringing new refreshment. Sometimes it's new forgiveness. Sometimes it's new awareness. Sometimes it's fresh revelation. Sometimes fresh anointing. But it is always fresh. It is always new. Just like an underground spring that is unending. It just keeps bringing it on. And the degree to which you enjoy the fresh water of the Holy Spirit depends upon how much you're willing to ask for. You ask for more, there's going to be more. You deny... There will be less and perhaps even a quenching that goes on. God puts it in your hands. How much of My Spirit do you want? I will give you all you ask for, and I will keep giving. John 7.37, Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. By this, John writes, he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who had believed in Him were to receive. But the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But Jesus has been glorified, and guess what? The Spirit has been given. And He is flowing literally up out of those who believe fresh and new every day, always refreshing, never running dry. Verse 14, God says, is Israel a slave? Or is He a home-born servant? Now listen, Israel was a slave, but remember, before Israel was a slave in Egypt, Israel was a son in the promised land. When they came into the promised land, they were coming back. Abraham was called to be a son. Isaac, son of Abraham, was called to be a son. Jacob was called to be a son. Jacob, who is renamed Israel, and his sons, and his family, and his offspring, called to be sons not slaves. Hosea 11.1 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And Matthew would later draw on that to speak of Jesus. Because Jesus, after the whole you know, attack of Herod on the infants, Joseph and Mary took Jesus into Egypt. And then out of Egypt, Jesus came back up fulfilling that prophecy as they moved back up to Nazareth. But it speaks of Israel. Now listen to this. As sons, it means Israel was invited to start speaking of God as Father. You are now our Father. Jesus comes along and completely rattles their cage. Some might dare to call God Father, but don't you dare call Him Daddy. Jesus did. Jesus called Him Abba. Abba. I've told you before, I love being in Jerusalem on school days when the kids are wandering through the streets because you hear them calling out, Abba! Abba! Calling out to their dads, Daddy! And the Bible tells us, Romans 8.15, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And my favorite thing to hear at the end of a long day when I put David in bed, my adopted four-year-old son, is I love to hear him say, Night Daddy. Makes my millennium. Night Daddy. And that's our call. Make certain of your calling. Guess what? Part of your calling is you're called a son. You're called, ladies, a daughter. And God is your Father and He is your Abba. It is that intimate with him. Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, oh, you are an heir through God. The people are missing this. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Well, why has he become a prey? The young lions, verse 15, have roared at him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities have been destroyed without inhabitant. Who are the young lions he's talking about? This would be any number of the nations. God said originally, I'm going to protect you against the nations. Come into the land. Trust me. Follow me. Do as I tell you to do. I'm going to protect you. But ever since they came into the land, they have been under assault time and time and time again. Go through the book of Judges. It's a total cycle of assault. God delivers His people, they rebel against Him, He He lifts His covering, His grace that covered them, and in comes an invasive army and destroys part of the land. And the people cry out to God, and He delivers them. And then they rebel against Him, and in comes an invasion. And this happens again and again in the history of Israel, these young lions coming in and desolating aspects of the land. Verse 16, also the men of Memphis and Tokpanchase, which is how you say that, not easy to say. Memphis and that other place were Egyptian cities. Note that. Verse 16 is talking about Egypt. You've been desolated by all these nations, these young lands attacking, coming in, and tearing it up. And you have been desolated by Egypt. Watch this. They have come in and shaved the crown of your head. What does that mean? They've shaved the crown of your head. A couple of possibilities. Uh, one possibility could just be the uh, the attack of Egypt. I guess it was 912, 920, somewhere around then, where Pharaoh Shishak came in and attacked and desolated a good part of Judah, a good part of the land there. More than likely, what's being talked about here is a reference to the death of Josiah. They shaved off the crown. Because it was against Egypt that Josiah went to battle. Shouldn't have. God didn't want him to. God told him, don't go to battle. Josiah did anyway, and in 609 B.C., he gets killed in battle against Egypt. And the only question is, well... But this talks about it as if it has happened, but some prophecy is given as if it's already happened because it is so absolutely certain that it's going to happen. So it may be talking about Egypt right there and the murder, the death of Josiah in battle, 609 B.C. Verse 17. God says, Have you not done this to yourself by your forsaking the Lord your God when He led you in the way? But now what are you doing on the road to Egypt? To drink the waters of the Nile? What are you doing on the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Do you really believe, Israel, that alliances with enemy states will bring you security? Fast forward to the modern state of Israel. Do you really believe, state of Israel, that alliances with enemy states will bring you security? Are you going to drink from their rivers or from the fountain of living water? Can you go to the Euphrates, go to the Nile? How about going to Jesus? How about going to the Spirit of God? In 1979, many of you know this, Jimmy Carter brokered the historic peace agreement between Egypt, of all places, and Israel, the Camp David Accords. How's that peace agreement doing right now? As the Muslim Brotherhood have taken over control of Egypt, President uh, or Prime Minister Morsi, there in Egypt... The president of Egypt talks about maintaining peace with Israel. This is the latest thing. We want to have peace with Israel. Although it was last year that he said Israelis are all descendants of apes and pigs. His words. You want to sign a peace treaty with this guy? Good luck with that. And so Israel today feels alone in the world. But they're not. Any more than they were during these days. During the days of Jeremiah. They were not alone in the world. God was still their God. You know what's amazing? I'm going to jump ahead of myself here. What's absolutely amazing to me is that God, in sending them into Babylonian captivity, had two purposes. Number one, to teach them about idolatry and how bad it really was. You know, you want to be idolatrous? I'm going to send you to the world capital of idolatry and you're going to get your fill. Kind of like when Israel wanted quail. They wanted meat. And God said, I'll give you a quail until it's coming out your nostrils. Okay? And He did that. Sent them. But the other reason He sent them to Babylon, gang, listen, was protection. He's punishing and He's protecting at the same time. He's disciplining, but He's being sure that this remnant of Israel coming that will come back from Babylon will come back to the land when it's safe to do so and when they can be protected once again. It's remarkable how God works. Sometimes He's going to punish you and protect you at the same time. Bust you for doing something in your life you ought not be doing. And at the same time, He is protecting you against your own foolish self. God sees what we don't see. Well, verse 19, Your own wickedness will correct you, and your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. Why is it bitter? Because the water is not fresh. The water is not fresh and flowing. It's stagnant, bitter. And He says, For you... It is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God, and the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. The word apostasies, note this, I'm probably going to talk about this more on Sunday, but the word apostasies there, it's apostasia in the Greek if we're reading the New Testament, different word in the Hebrew, different meaning. Apostasies in the New Testament Greek means falling away. Apostasies, as translated here, it's the Hebrew word meshubah. And Meshubah literally means turning back or backsliding. Backsliding. Your backsliding, he says, will reprove you. Your turning away, your heading back to old behavior, to old things, is going to get you. Now, to submit their understanding, the Lord is going to give Jeremiah five word pictures. And you can just follow these through. They're they're very obvious here in the Scriptures. Five word pictures that describe backsliding. See if any of these apply to you. A couple of them applied to me. Picture number one. A freed slave girl who becomes a harlot. Picture number one, verse 20. For long ago I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Listen to the irony there. I pull you out of slavery and you say to the one who rescues you from slavery, I won't serve you. Just rescued you from that, right? And under, for on every high hill and every under every green tree, you have lain down as a harlot. Freed by the Lord from slavery, the people now turn back and say, we won't serve you, Lord. In fact, even before they were five miles out of Egypt, some of them were saying, can we go back? You know, I'm kind of used to the leeks and the onions that we ate there. Can we go back to Egypt? Backsliding. They say we won't serve you, so instead they become slaves to their own idolatry. Paul puts it this way. You can be a slave of sin, or you can be a slave of righteousness. Either way, you're going to be a slave. So your choice is you can serve yourself, and you can serve your sin, and you can serve idolatry, or you can serve God. Here's the big difference. Anything you serve other than God is an oppressive ruler. If you serve God, He is a gracious, merciful ruler. There is freedom in slavery to righteousness. There is nothing but bounds, binds and and shame in slavery to anything else. Galatians 5.1 says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. What's Paul talking about? Religion is one big deal. A lot of of people come to Christ. They they come to the freedom and the joy of grace and then they head right down the road of religion and they become slaves of law and legalism and, and grouchy righteousness. You know? Some become Christians and then they take their freedom in Christ and they use it as license to sin and they go right back into slavery. Either way, it's backsliding. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 20. If after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome and the last state has become worse for them than the first. Peter says it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known the way of righteousness to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. How is it better for them not to know at all than to know and then to backslide? Because once you backslide, now you know what you've left. And ignorance is bliss. Peter in essence says better to be a sinner who never comes to know the Lord than a sinner who knows the Lord and then goes back to sinning. Because if you go back, You know what you're missing. You have knowledge of that. It happened to them according to the true proverb, Peter writes, a dog returns to its own vomit, and I have watched my dog do it, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. So a freed girl, a freed slave girl, set free, now turning to harlotry is the first word picture. That's backsliding. Secondly, picture number two, a choice vine that goes bad. Verse twenty-one. Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? And this mention of the choice vine, it brings to mind Isaiah's parable of the vineyard. You may recall that from our study in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter five, verse two. He talks about how there was a hill given to the beloved of the Lord, Jesus. And on that hill he planted a vineyard, Israel. And the vineyard was to produce beautiful grapes for the beloved, Jesus. And Isaiah says in verse 2, he expected it to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. You were supposed to be this beautiful vineyard, which became this worthless, unedible thing. Matthew 21, then Jesus came along, grabbed hold of Isaiah's parable of the vineyard and extended it, saying, when the vine growers see the sun, they say to themselves, hey, this is the heir, come let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those vine growers? Matthew 21. The irony here is tragic. Judah's apostasy back then, being a choice vineyard that went bad back then, back in this time, Their apostasy would lead to the fall of Jerusalem, 586 B.C. Fast forward, Jesus is there. Jesus grabs hold of the parable of the vineyard, uses it again. And the same exact thing happens again. Their apostasy leads to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Both times Jerusalem falls. Both times the temple is burned. Both times Jews are driven out and taken into captivity. Because they reject the beloved who owns the vineyard in the first place.